Good morning, everybody okay? You guys good? Good? All right, thank you guys for being here. Uh, continuing to work through 1 Samuel. And um, if you weren't here last week, Savut always does a good job, doesn't he? I always think Savut does a good job. Someone. <laughs> okay, so if you're new here, we go through whole books of the Bible, and, and, and I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to say something that people don't say in church, but, you know, it's in the Bible, so you can say it. So... Uh, we go through whole books of the Bible, and, and the great thing about going through whole books of the Bible, great thing and difficult thing is you, you, it is it is impossible to skip difficult things that are in there. If it, if it says it in there, we have to talk about it, we have to discuss it, we have to explain what it means. And so the reason I'm telling you that is, A, if you're new, you kind of know how we do things, and, and, and B, last week someone came up to me and they said, did you purposely give Savut the chapter where it talked about hundreds of foreskins? And I said... Yes. <laughs> just want to be a good leader. I want to give people another opportunity to teach, you know, help him grow in his teaching abilities. And uh, it's fun. All right. Anyway, so if you weren't here last week, chapter 18, and whenever people say the Old Testament is boring, like, how do you come to that conclusion? Just in 1 Samuel, I mean, man, there is still so much. If you have not read ahead, I mean, eventually, like, there's some crazy stuff in here. I'm ruining it for you. But Saul eventually like conjures up the spirit of Samuel through a witch and all kinds of crazy stuff. It's nuts. It's an amazing book of the Bible. Hope you've enjoyed it so far. Last week in chapter 18, if you haven't been here, we've been focusing on primarily three main characters. And then, of course, there's lots of, of kind of supporting people in this book of the Bible. We've been focusing on Samuel. He is the prophet. We've been focusing on Saul. He is the first king of the Jewish people. And then, of course, we've been focusing a lot on David, who will be the second king of the Jewish people and arguably the most famous and most impactful leader that the Jewish people have ever had. And so we've been focusing on that. And in chapter 18, what we're starting to see, and Savut briefly mentioned this, is starting in chapter 18 and, and all the way to the end of 1 Samuel, you are seeing the descent of Saul into, into madness. The Holy Spirit has left Saul, and we are just seeing him gravitate further and further down this road of chaos and confusion and evil, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. On the, the contrary, on the flip side of that, we are seeing David, and we're going to talk about David's best friend the next couple of weeks, Jonathan. We are seeing David go the opposite direction. David is not perfect, as anyone who has read the Bible knows, but he is a man after God's heart. And so he continues down the road of righteousness, and he grows in that way. So we're seeing this major departure that is happening from here till the end of 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, Savut talked a lot about identity, uh, because when we don't know who we are in God, we do a lot of crazy stuff. Saul tries to kill David several times. Then Saul tries to sabotage David by marrying him off to his, his daughter, uh, Michal. He uh, Savut used uh, Michael last week, which is another proper way to say it, but I'm going to say Michal because I just want to be different. And, um, and so, so David gets into this marriage with Michal, and we're going to see that that, that that starts to fall apart even as early as chapter 19. And so a lot's going on. And so this week, as we get into chapter 19, we're going to talk about something extremely important. We're going to talk about character. Uh, and this is something that we don't talk about enough in, in modern society, our, our character, our, our honor, our dignity, um, our morality, these kinds of things. We've kind of put, we, we put character on the back burner 
especially in the Western world. And um, that's not what God wants. God wants us to be people of integrity, people of character. So we're gonna briefly talk about today the cost of rebellion or disobedience to God, right? Our, our lack of character. And then we're also gonna talk about the rewards of character, the rewards of integrity. And I'm not even talking about heaven and hell, I'm talking about in this life, the rewards of living the way that we're supposed to, to live. We're gonna focus on that a little bit today. Short chapter, we'll get through it relatively quick. There's some really, really interesting stuff, especially towards the end. And again, for the next two weeks, we're gonna be talking a lot about Jonathan, uh, David's best friend. We'll be focusing on him a little bit, okay? All right, so. Everything will be on the screens. You should have got a notes handout. Everything will be in that. If you have the Experience Community app, just click on Sermon Notes. Make sure that you've selected the proper campus. You don't want to accidentally get like Josh's notes from Woodbury or something. You'd be deeply disappointed. So um, make sure you pick the right campus. And um, we're also, if you have a Bible, we're in the Old Testament, the ninth book of the Old Testament, 19th chapter. We should be good to go, all right? Let me pray for you, and then we'll dive into this, and uh, hopefully, hopefully you'll find this chapter Interesting. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. Thank you, Lord, for everyone in this room. I thank you, God, that people would come out and sacrifice a, a chunk of their weekend, Lord, to, to worship and to read the word and to, to, little bit, to learn a little bit more about you. God, we just pray that as we study, Lord, as we take communion a little bit later, as we respond to your word, we just pray that you bless our church. Keep your hand on our church, Lord. I pray that we, either, we, we are people of character, God, that we're people of depth. Father, we don't just pray for our church, we pray for all churches in our city, pray for our other three campuses, God, and for the churches in those cities, and we just pray that, it, that, that everything we do today, God, that it honors you and blesses you, Lord. We love you, we thank you. Pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, chapter 19, I'm gonna read a little bit, and we'll go back and we'll break it down, okay? Saul ordered his son Jonathan and all of his servants to kill David. But Saul's son, Jonathan, liked David very much. So he told him, my father Saul intends to kill you. Be on guard in the morning and hide in a secret place and stay there. I'll go out and I'll stand beside my father in the field where you are and talk to him about you. When I see what he says, I'll tell you. Jonathan spoke well of David to his father Saul. He said to him, the king should not sin against his servant David. He hasn't sinned against you. In fact, his actions have been a great advantage to you. He took his life in his hands when he struck down the Philistine, that's Goliath, and the Lord brought about a great victory for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. So why would you sin against innocent blood by killing David for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan's advice and he swore an oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be killed. So Jonathan summoned David and told him all these words. Then Jonathan brought David to Saul and he served Saul as he did before. So like I said last week, I think there were three attempts that Saul made on David's life. And then he tried to scheme and tried to sabotage David. So after trying to kill him a couple of times, Saul then tells his son, Jonathan, and Jonathan's men, right? Uh, he says, you guys, whenever you get the opportunity, kill David. The problem was, and we'll find this out more in the future, 
is Jonathan and David had an extremely deep friendship. One that's going to last for, it's going to ripple through generations and generations. They left this huge legacy. We'll read about that a little bit in the next chapter, but they were very, very close to each other. And so because he was a good friend and he was bound to David, he goes and tells David what's going on. And then he says, hey, David, hide out and I'm gonna try to fix this. I'm gonna try to fix this relationship between you and my father. Now I'm gonna pause there for a second because here's kind of our first practical lesson in all this. We all need people like this in our lives. We need people who are level-headed when we're not. We need people who are willing to help us without counting the cost of it and without expecting to get reciprocated in some way. We need, listen, and you don't need a ton of like deep friends in your life, but the older I get, the more I realize I just need three or four but you need those people. Guys, this is why the church is important. This is why we're to create an environment to where hopefully those relationships can be born and be nurtured and fostered. This is why the Bible says in Hebrews, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as many people are because we need to be in a loving, deep community and you have to have those deepest relationships in your life, right? People who will hold you accountable, who love you, who walk with you. So Jonathan was one of these guys. Jonathan's character was extremely deep. We know that his character was deep because if anyone had to benefit from David dying, it was Jonathan. He was the successor to the throne. He was the prince. And so if David would have been killed, Jonathan would have been the clear one to eventually be the king. But his willingness to, again, bridge the gap between his best friend and his father showed that he was a very, very good person. And so we have to ask ourselves, guys, do we value our character more than we value selfish gain? What kind of people are we? You guys ever been to Disney World or Universal and you wait, you know, like two hours in a line for something that's gonna, you know, be 45 seconds and you wait in it and you see that person way up at the front who's been waiting for a long time too and right when you're about to get into like the environment, they make a phone call and then like 10 of their friends show up and, and get in line, uh, don't be that person. God does not want you to be that person. <laughs> if you are that person, you may have saved time in line, but you have sacrificed your character uh, because people like me are in the back who follow the rules and I don't like you and other people don't like you. And that's <laughs> a terrible example, but, but God wants us to be people it's the best I could do, guys. It's, it, God wants us to be the kind of people that value character more than just quick gain, more than selfishness. We want to be the kind of people, or we should want to be the kind of people that love others more than we love ourselves and treat others the way that we want to be treated. And of course, this is all throughout the Bible. So we want to be people of honor. We want to be people who are honest. We want to be people who, who have a heart of servitude. And do we understand that not only does God reward this kind of character, but, but we, are, we are representatives of him on earth. So when we cut corners and we're selfish and we exchange our character for selfish gain, we're not being good representatives of Christ. And Jonathan knew this. He was willing to put his kingship on the, on, on the back burner, right? And he does because he, he values loyalty more than selfish gain. And then Jonathan goes to his dad, he talks to his dad, he's trying to fix this situation. So he's trying to rationalize with his father. And John gave Saul three different reasons why he shouldn't kill David. The first one, 
David hadn't done anything wrong. That's a pretty good reason. He never wronged you. The second one is David's victories actually made Saul look better. They didn't hurt Saul, they helped Saul. I'm gonna go back to that one here in a second. The third reason that really should be the first reason is it was a sin, that it would be rebellion against God to kill, especially kill someone that is innocent. But look at this second one. Something we don't realize is this, and listen, this is for any of you in this room who ever have any authority in your life, with all, which all of you will have some level of authority in your life. When we hold authority with a tight, closed fist, what happens is when it comes time to distribute authority because we're so concerned about ourselves, we will become jealous, we will become foolish, we will become spiteful because we're holding on to that control, that, that authority very, very tightly. But when we have authority and we hold it with an open hand, that actually makes us look like better leaders. When we distribute authority, Again, good example from last weekend. Savut taught last weekend, did a fantastic job. Of course, all kinds of people are like, man, Savut did a great job. He was awesome. I'm glad that you let him teach every once in a while. That doesn't threaten my authority. That doesn't threaten who I am as a leader. In fact, it actually makes me feel like I'm doing a better job as a leader, that I have more people coming up underneath me that have the ability to, to do what I do. And wherever you are in life, you shouldn't be threatened by good people that are your employees or, man, there's a lot of parents who are threatened by their children. How sick is that, right? And we should hold this kind of authority open-handedly because that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to distribute this authority because it's all about the betterment of mankind. It's all about the betterment and the advancement of God's kingdom. So Saul listened to his son, kind of, listened to him for a minute, swore an oath, I will not kill David, and he won't, right? David will not die at the hands of Saul. But he didn't really keep his oath, as we're gonna see very, very quickly. But for a short amount of time, David was back in the royal household. He's doing the work that he used to do. We're gonna see this in the next section. But what we learn from Jonathan is this. We learn a very, very important life lesson with this conversation with Jonathan and Saul. The first half that we learn is this. We are called as Christians to be peacemakers. Do you hear me? Because there's a lot of people who claim to be Christians but love to agitate. They love to escalate tension, and the Christian is not meant to escalate tension. The Christian is meant to de-escalate tension. Doesn't mean that we compromise on our beliefs, but we are meant to, be, to, to, to bring order, to bring peace. Why? Because God is a God of order and because we worship the Prince of Peace. We are to bring those things, right, as representatives of him. So that's the first lesson. The second lesson, though, is this. We can do everything we can to be at peace with others, but the, the, the hard lesson of life is this. There are a lot of people who don't wanna be at peace with you. Now, at that point, if we have done all we can do, if I have done everything I can to be Christ-like to you, if I have built my half of the bridge to you and you decide to not meet me halfway and build that bridge back, quite frankly, that's out of my hands and I'm not gonna feel bad about that. I'm not gonna feel guilty about that because I've done all that I can do. Your response to that, if I wrong you and I say I'm sorry and you're like, well, I'm not taking that. Well, it, it's, it, there's no blood on my hands at that point. I've done everything that I can to, to resolve the situation, to fix it, to build this bridge. Now, how other people respond, that, that's out of my control. And that's a lesson that we all need to know. We just do the best that we can do, okay? When war broke out again, David went out and fought against the Philistines. He defeated them with such great force that they fled from him. 
Now an evil spirit sent from the Lord came on Saul while he was sitting in the palace holding a spear. If an evil spirit falls on someone around you, it's probably not the best that there's a spear also there. David was playing the lyre, and Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear. As the spear struck the wall, David eluded Saul, ran away, and escaped that night. Saul sent agents to David's house to watch him and kill him in the morning. But his wife, Michal, warned David, if you don't escape tonight, you'll be dead tomorrow. So she lowered David from the window and he fled and escaped. Then Michal took the household idol, put it on the bed, placed goat hair on its head, and covered it with a garment. When Saul sent agents to seize David, Michal said, he's sick. Saul sent the agents back to see David and said, bring him on his bed so I can kill him. When the agents arrived, to their surprise, the household idol was on the bed with some goat hair on its head. Saul asked Michal, that's his daughter, why did you deceive me like this? You sent my enemy away and he has escaped. And she answered Saul, he said to me, she means David, let me go, why should I kill you? So she blamed it on her husband, okay? So war breaks out again, right? David is back. He's doing what he used to do. He's in, uh, uh, he's in the royal palace with the rest of the royal family. War breaks out. David goes back to fight against uh, the Philistines, which over and over again throughout the Old Testament, we see this. And again, an evil spirit comes and, and torments Saul. This time, when the spirit came on Saul, David was sitting there, you know, playing a, a riff on the lyre there. He's sitting there singing, he's serenading, he's, he's calming down Saul, but Saul grabs a spear, chucks it at David, misses, hits the wall, David escapes. David escapes and Saul sends agents to go to his house to wait for him and to kill him in the morning. So Michal finds out about this, David's wife, Saul's daughter, right? A devoted wife, Kinda, right? Gets this from her dad. Kinda devoted, but not really. Michal loved David and warned him about the plot. Hey, if you don't get out of here, you're gonna be dead by the morning. So she lowered him through a window. She took a household idol, a statue, obviously, a household idol, laid it on the bed, covered it up, put some goat hair on top, made it look like David was sleeping in there, like he was sick in bed. And she did this to, 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 to try to hide him so he could get away, Right? Now, here's why when we read the Bible, it's not always good to just fly through it. And listen, if you've done this, I'm not trying to be mean to you this morning, but whenever people are like, man, I'm gonna read the Bible in 30 days, I'm like, well, I guess that's possible, but you're gonna miss a lot of good stuff. And so like here, if you just flash through this chapter, you think, oh, Michal was really clever, right? Take a, take a statue, an idol, put it in the bed, make it look like David, David could escape. And you miss what is really going on here what we learn is that there was an idol in the house. And so did she think that the idol wouldn't save David just by being in the bed and looking like David? Did she have a superstitious religious belief that there was some power with this idol to protect her husband? Now, the reason why I believe that is probably true is back in the last chapter, Saul says about his daughter that his daughter would be a trap for David. Now listen, hold on, you guys ready? Hold on. 
Even Saul, listen to me, Saul who did not have the Holy Spirit of God, Saul recognized that if I pair up a righteous person with an unrighteous person, eventually it will mess up the righteous person. Everybody awake? Okay, we're gonna touch on that a little bit later too. That it is not biblical, that God is not honored, that people get derailed when a righteous person and an unrighteous person are yoked together. I'm not trying to be mean this morning, I'm just gonna talk truth to you this morning. So the fact that she had an idol in her home lets us know that she only had partial allegiance to God. Imagine a person that would say that they followed God, but they actually found their comfort and knowledge and wisdom from other sources other than God. The second thing that we learn is that when when push came to shove, she blamed her husband. Dad, he said he was gonna kill me if I didn't let him go. And what we're gonna find out in 2 Samuel, if you go on and read that, is that her disconnect from God would eventually be her downfall. Listen, and and, and again, guys, I'm, I'm not... I'm not talking about anyone in this room in in particular. I'm talking about American Christian culture. But our problem is this whole false notion that we can have partial allegiance to God is is in no way biblical. This kind of like 50% riding the fence Christian thing, I'll show up to church once or twice a month if the weather's good and there's no football on. I'll give if I get a bonus check. I'll serve if I have nothing else to do with my time. This whole, I'll read the Bible every once in a while. You know, only 5% of professing Christians in the United States actually read the Bible. No wonder that so much heresy has slipped into the church, right? No one knows any better. Uh, do you know that, 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 that um, the majority of Christians in the United States go to church once a month? Once a month, 25% of the time. Imagine if you only talk to your spouse 25% of the time. You know about, it's only about 25%, 15 to 25% of all professing Christians give financially on a regular basis to the church. And so it's no wonder that we're seeing the United States and Western Christianity completely tank because we're not really dedicated to it. And whenever people say, I'm a Christian and I'm part of the church, Listen, if you're not attending, you're not serving, you're not contributing in any way, and you're not in community, you're not a Christian and you're not a part of the church. You may be in this room right now, but that doesn't mean you're part of the church. Man, I can be in the, you know, I can go to like the Kennedy Space Station. That doesn't mean I'm an astronaut. Do you hear me? And we have bought into this lie, this false narrative that if I just show up to this building a couple of times a month, that I'm good. And what it is, it is really... Thinly veiled, well-disguised, maybe not even well-disguised selfishness. It is saying, hey, I don't really love you and want to be with you, but I just don't want to go to hell. That's essentially what a lot of us are doing. May not be talking about you. Listen, I may be talking about you this morning. And and I hope you hear that with love because we, we... One of the biggest problems that the American church has had is we have been so worried about offending each other that we shy away from the truth and it's not doing us any good. So we have to ask ourselves, do we do this? Do we say that we love God and follow God, but we actually have all these other things that give us fulfillment? Do we tend to trust in our own logic and our own methods more than in the ways of God? Here's another mistake that a lot of modern Christians use. If we struggle with, I don't know, let's say anxiety. Instead of going to the Bible and seeing what the Bible says about anxiety, we read about what this this new Christian speaker says over here. 
And we're reading all these supplemental things and we've never read the Bible that is the anchor of, of, of all theology. And so whenever a guy gets up on a stage, even in some mega church and starts teaching a bunch of heresy, again, we have no idea because we've read all his books, but we haven't read the great book. And this is a problem. And we've made idols out of other people. And we've made idols out of our deduction and our reason. And the Bible says, lean not on your understanding. Lean on his that's why our power, our wisdom, our way of fixing ourselves, of course, God fixes us, but you know what I'm saying, is through him, it's through his word, it's through his spirit. And I'm not anti-book, I have lots of books in my office, great books. But if I'm a Christian and if I haven't read this book and I'm getting my theology from other people, I've made a grave error, okay? We need to make sure that we don't lean on our understanding, that we lean on God's. And if we, if we lean on our understanding, we're, we're gonna end up in a spot of disgrace as we see in this next part. This is very, very interesting. So David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah and told him everything that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel left and stayed at Nayot. When it was reported to Saul that David was at Nayot and Ramah, he sent agents to seize David. However, when they saw the group of prophets prophesying with Samuel leading them, the Spirit of God came on Saul's agents, and they started prophesying. When they reported to Saul, he sent other agents, and they also began prophesying. So Saul tried again and sent a third group of agents, and they began prophesying. Then Saul himself went to Ramah. He came to the large cistern at Secu and asked, where are Samuel and David? At Nyot and Ramah, someone asked, or someone said. So he went to Nyot and Ramah, and the Spirit of God also came on him. And as he walked along, he prophesied until he entered Nyot or Nyot and Ramah. Saul then removed his clothes and also prophesied before Samuel. He collapsed and lay naked all that day and all that night. That is why they say, is Saul also among the prophets? I'll explain this. This is a little complicated, but I'll explain it. So David only traveled about three miles when he ran away from Saul, right? That's three miles by foot. I don't know if anyone else does this. You read the Bible and it says 10 miles and you're like, oh, a 10 minute drive. They didn't have cars back then. So it was, it was quite a good walk, right? So he leaves and he seeks out Samuel, the old prophet. And he tells Samuel everything that has been going on. This is interesting. No one knows for sure what this Nyot area is. It wasn't a geographical area, really. No, no one really knows exactly what it was. What a lot of theologians believe it was is they believe it was almost like a retirement community for old prophets. Like that place in Florida when you're on your way to Disney World, you know that big like living community, you have to be like 55 and they all hang out there and they've got like their own racquetball courts and stuff. It was kind of like that. <laughs> but for prophets. So they go to this area, this, this kind of religious complex or this, this monastery or this neighborhood where these old prophets kind of resided and David found the old prophet, Samuel. Now, when Saul found out about this, Saul sent his agents, right? His henchmen to go track down David and to seize him, to kill him. When the agents got to Samuel's town, when they got to Ramah, and specifically this neighborhood, they witnessed a group of prophets prophesying. I'm gonna define prophecy. That's what makes this a little confusing, this part. 
But as they're walking, they see a group of guys and they're all prophesying. And as they get closer to this group and closer to where Samuel is, the Holy Spirit then falls on them and they start prophesying. Now, in a nutshell, what is happening right here is it was not God's will that David be killed. That was Saul's will. And so when Saul was going against the will of God, what God essentially did is he came in and he captured the hearts and minds of the people sent to, to, to kill David and he derailed them and sent them another way, right? More than likely, the men who were sent to go kill David were not bad men. They were just doing what the king had told them to do, right? And so God captures, he kind of overtakes these people and fills them with the spirit and they start to prophesy. Now, what in the heck does that mean and what does that look like? When most people hear the word prophecy, they think of someone telling the future. Now, in the Old Testament, that, that did happen a lot. Samuel does it in the book of Samuel. Moses did it. Isaiah did it. Jeremiah did it. A lot of prophets told of things that were going to happen that haven't happened yet, right? Mostly to a nation. If we don't, you know, if we don't live righteously, God is going to do this. If we do this, God's going to do this. Another way to think of prophecy, though, is forth-telling, not foretelling the future, but foretelling. That means to proclaim the truth of God, to proclaim the will of God, the direction of God. When Paul talks about the gift of prophecy in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he means uh, people who are basically making the, the truth of God known, interpreting the purposes of God. Now, this may not help you visually understand uh, what's going on in this scene, but, but let me see if I can try a little bit harder. Uh, the church I got saved in was a pretty charismatic church. We, we had a prayer room, and I remember before service, a lot of people, anyone could go back there. You would go back in this room, and people would just be praying. Typically, when you went back in this room, it was, it was pretty quiet back, or uh, not quiet, it was pretty dark back there. It was anything but quiet. It was pretty dark back there. And you would walk back in there, and people would be very passionately praying. They'd be walking around, their hands in the air, and they would be quoting Scripture, they would, be, they would be praising God for truth. Not praising like we do during worship service, but walking around saying, God, you're so good. You created the heavens. You created the earth. You created every animal. They're essentially quoting Genesis 1 and 2. Or they would quote you know, promises from the Bible and they would speak out the will of God. God, it's your will for us to live righteously and, and, and we want to be holy like you are holy. And they're prophesying. If you can imagine in your head, they walked up and they saw a group of guys passionately praising God speaking the truth of God. Maybe they were quoting the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Maybe they're reciting different promises from the scripture and, and they're doing that. And that fell on all the people that, that Saul had sent to this area. Well, Saul's like, all right, none of them can do it. I guess I'll do it. So he goes out there and he decides that he'll, he'll be the one to seize David and get David. So he stops at a watering hole, a big cistern. There's people hanging out there. He goes, hey, where's David? Where's Samuel? Probably didn't tell them that he intended to kill them. And they said, well, he's, he's at Ramah. He's at this area. So they go, and Saul goes that direction. And when Saul enters into the town, the same thing happens to him. Now, let me pause here for a second. If you've been with me for a while going through this book of the Bible, how in the world can the Holy Spirit act and work through someone who it says the Holy Spirit has departed, has left. This is very, very strange. How can, if you were, if you were with me a couple of, I guess it was about a month or two ago, 
When the Holy Spirit departed Saul, I kind of ruined this chapter and I said, man, it's crazy. The Holy Spirit leaves, then it comes back and Saul takes his clothes off and lies naked on the ground. Pretty bizarre. Why would this happen? So the Holy Spirit came on Saul for several different reasons. Not because he was a good, righteous man, but exactly the opposite. Saul was reminded when the Holy Spirit came on him, captured his heart and mind, he started proclaiming the truth of God. At that moment, Saul knew that he was not in control. God was in control. You guys hear me? That God is in control. The second thing is he starts to derobe. He starts to take his clothes off. The reason why that is significant is Saul was not worthy to be king. And if you're not worthy to be king, you're not, you're not worthy to dress like the king. You're not, worried, you're, you're not worthy to be clothed like the king because he had rejected God. He was not worthy to have authority. He was not worthy to have leadership. And so he was being stripped of that, literally and metaphorically. It also says that once he strips down, he finds Samuel and he starts prophesying in front of Samuel. My take on this is this, this is God kind of vindicating Samuel. So Samuel had been telling Saul the truth Saul's entire life, and Saul always rejected the truth. And now Saul comes up to Samuel and starts proclaiming the truth about God. And so Samuel was kind of vindicated in that moment. Also, him lying there naked, it says all day and all night, Saul laid on the ground naked. You can't think of a more humiliating thing for a king to go through. A more humbling act. He had been completely humbled in that moment. And then the last thing, the cherry on top, it says, this is why they say is Saul among the prophets. If you were with me a couple of months ago, when Saul first became king, he was hanging out around a couple of prophets. He was a young man. He was still a good man. And it said that he prophesied with the prophets. And so all the people stood around and they go, wow, is Saul a prophet too? Basically like an adoration of him. Now at this point, when the Holy Spirit has departed him and he's evil and disobedient, he's lying on the ground naked in shame and disgrace. And now the people are saying the same thing, but from a completely different standpoint, they're going, is Saul one of the prophets? Almost laughing and mocking, saying, that guy's no king. That guy is no purveyor of the truth. That guy is no prophet. So where have we found Saul at? At this point, and it's only gonna get worse, guys. At this point, because of sin, because of disobedience, I hope everyone hears me this morning, because of sin and because of disobedience, Saul is left in utter shame, utter chaos, utter confusion, utter disgrace. And any of us old cats in this room who have lived a little bit of life that is sinful and disobedient, you know that sin and disobedience always leaves us in the exact same place. Shame, disgrace, embarrassment, Chaos, confusion, why? Because that's the devil's whole goal. The devil's whole goal, according to Jesus, Jesus is the one I'm quoting here, that Satan's goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. And listen, when you and I choose a life of sin, what we are doing when we choose a life of sin is we are essentially saying to God, I'm gonna do it my way, you can take your hand off me. And when we choose a life of sin, right, 
What we are left with is our own devices. I'm not trying to be pessimistic this morning, but if humanity has taught us one thing over history, it's that we always inevitably fail. You guys, we still teach history in schools, don't we? I hope so. There is not one empire that has stood the test of time. There is not one human that has conquered death. No one has solved the greatest mysteries in life because they refuse to look at God. And so when we reject God, we are left to our own devices and those are going to fail. We're also, we're also uh, leave ourselves susceptible to the snares of the devil. And these things will always result in destruction. Steal, kill, destroy. And this is where Saul is left on his face naked in the middle of a public town. Okay, we're gonna start with loyalty. We're gonna go through a couple more things and we're gonna end on loyalty. Going back to Jonathan, Jonathan was a loyal friend with a level head that encouraged David without letting go of the truth. Listen, if we truly love people and if people truly love us, they will tell us the truth. Whenever we say things like, man, I love them so much, I don't wanna hurt their feelings with the truth, what you're really saying is, I love myself so much, I don't want people to not like me. If you're new here, you're like, I'm not gonna come back. This guy's really mean sometimes. <laughs> I'm not trying to be mean, I, I, but, but listen, all of us in our life need someone that will hold us accountable. They will tell us the truth. They will love us. We need those kind of people. If you're hanging out with a bunch of people whenever you get in a fight with your husband and you call your girlfriends and you're like, oh, I just had a fight with my husband. And their first response is, girl, let's go to Nashville. We'll get on one of those classy pedal tavern things. We'll go to some honky-tonk. We'll be super classy and we'll find you a dude. Listen, <laughs> if those are your friends, I'm gonna go ahead and break it to you. They're not really your friends. They're, 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 gonna, they're gonna cause you to go down a direction of destruction. And they're gonna be catalysts and you getting divorced and you wrecking your kid's life and you doing a lot of stupid stuff. You don't need people like that. The Bible says we need iron that sharpens iron. The Bible also says that bad company corrupts good morals. You know what that means? Who you hang out with matters. You need good people in your life. Listen, not only do you need good people in your life, you need to be a good person. We need to be these kind of people. Do we love people in word and in deed? Do we challenge them? Do we love them? But do we love them with the truth? There's no way to really love someone if we're not telling them the truth. Are we being those kind of people? Or are we being like Michal? She, she had partial allegiance. Michal loved David, but had a partial reverence, a partial allegiance to God. And I said earlier, partial allegiance to God is just really well-disguised selfishness. It's us saying, uh, I'll, 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 I'll be with you as, 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 as little as I have to, just to escape hell. Do you know the Bible says that we are the bride of Christ? And all throughout the Bible, there is all this imagery of adultery, not literal adultery, spiritual adultery. And when we are only given partial time to God, the Bible calls that adultery, that we're an adulterous people because we have all these other lovers, if you will, all these other places where we seek fulfillment and value. And as Savut said last week, identity. And when we find value and fulfillment and identity in anything other than what we are married to, Right? 
We're, we're adulterous spiritually. So partial allegiance to God is, is, is selfishness. It's just looking out for us. I'm gonna, I'm gonna shift gears here for a second. I already said it earlier, but I'm gonna say it again for, for anyone in this room. Listen, this isn't me being cold or callous. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. If you are dating someone that is not a believer, I'm not trying to be cold, but if you're one of those people, well, I'm just, I'm praying that they come to church with me sometime. Listen, you can pray for them. You can, you can love them, but you can't date them and you can't marry them. Because the Bible says, if we yoke ourselves, Genesis 2.24 says that when we get married, we become one flesh. That's what Genesis 2.24 says. If we are unequally yoked, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians, if one is spiritually strong and the other is spiritually weak, it's never gonna go in a straight line towards Jesus. That's why, that's why Paul uses that analogy. So, so often I hear people say, well, I'm dating this boy, but he's not a believer. You don't need to date him well, I'm dating this girl. And I'm, I mean, she's kind of interested in church. Then, then you just need to be friends until she's really interested, right? And this is just the truth because if, if, if you continue to push through that, I, we're gonna see it with David and Michal. It's not, gonna, it's not gonna work out well. And if we claim to be Christians, we're supposed to do what Jesus tells us to do. Or listen, there are some of us, again, hopefully not anyone in this room, who have become like Saul. Saul was blatantly disobedient to God's commands. And when we are blatantly disobedient to God's commands, the Holy Spirit departs from us. Why? Because God will not occupy a rebellious heart. We learned this earlier in 1 Samuel when we talked about the temple of Dagon. If you weren't here, you should go back and read that. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament, that the, the presence of God will not be in the presence of, an, of a competing God. So if we expect that God will reside in our heart, but, but our allegiance is divided, right? It, it's just, it just won't happen. And here's the thing. If we are void of the Holy Spirit, a heart that is void of the Holy Spirit becomes a jealous heart. It becomes a suspicious heart. It becomes a, a selfish heart. And eventually, give it time, it will become a hateful heart, a violent heart. Have you not seen the level of aggression that is in the world right now? Especially in the Western world. Story two weeks ago, little, well, not quite two weeks ago, about a week and a half ago in Los Angeles, I think they eventually caught the guy. A guy for no rhyme or reason who was walking around at night in Los Angeles shooting homeless people in the face while they slept. No reason. A story in Las Vegas about two weeks ago where a 17-year-old kid tries to break up a fight at his high school and gets beat to death on the high school property, beat to death by other students. That there is this irrational hatred in the world right now. Look at the anti-Semitism right now. Look at the racism right now. Look at the misogyny and, and, and look at all the different things in the world right now. How hateful we have become. And we, we live under this, this kind of fake facade of, oh, we're all about love unless you disagree with me and then I will stomp you. That's American culture right now. Because when a, when, not just when, when, when an individual's heart is absent of the spirit of God, but when a people, when the heart of a people is absent, when the, when the spirit of God is absent from the heart of a people, you see a whole people group become violent. You, you, you see a whole people group become jealous and coveted, right? This is why the 10 commandments says not to kill. This is why the 10 commandments says not to want what other people have, because it's not your business. This is why the Ten Commandments deals with these kinds of things. Because God knows what happens to the human heart when his spirit is not in there. So, listen, 
two things that are really important here. One is this. A lack of loyalty, which is partial allegiance, will cause us eventually to compromise our faith. When we have a partial allegiance to God, we will eventually compromise our faith. We will become selfish. And when the Bible says things that we don't like or it goes against culture, it may cause other people not to like us. We compromise on those things, right? Whole denominations, whole megachurch pastors are doing it all the time in the United States. It's a partial allegiance. Or we can have just full-blown rebellion to God and neglect his commands. And that causes us to go down the path of anger and disgrace and malicious intent. I'm gonna make an argument to you. I think the first one is more dangerous than the second one. Because in the, in the good old Christian South, we have created this false sense of security that if I show up at a place every once in a while, right? If I say I'm this denomination or, or do whatever, that I'm somehow okay, and I'm going to tell you, the partial allegiance will send you to destruction just as much as the outright rebellion to God will. Where do you get crap like that, Corey? Jesus in Revelation in the first three chapters says, I would rather you be hot or cold. If you are in the middle, I will spit you out of my mouth, Jesus says. That's a pretty blatant statement about what it means to be partial to be on the fence. And guys, it permeates Southern Christianity. A very sharp young lady that I met with the other day, she was in my office. She just moved here from Portland, Oregon. Her family's been here for years and, and um, she got saved in Portland, moved out here. She's hanging out with her family and she was in my office and she was laughing about it. But she goes, Corey, when I first moved here, I just assumed everyone in the South were just like good Christian people. And she's like, then I saw how they drive and how they talk to each other and how rude they are in restaurants and how they, they aren't really committed to God at all, but they say they are. And she was very disappointed by that. Now that's not good. I'd rather have 100 loyal people in Portland, Oregon than have 7,000 people that are maybe mediocre. Listen, that, now if you're living right, you shouldn't be offended by that. If you're not living right, I hope you take that little subtle, eh, it wasn't very subtle, but I hope you take that jab <laughs> It is a, maybe a loving wake-up call that maybe I should give my whole heart to Christ. Here is the thing. Have we counted the long-term costs of not being fully committed to God? I'm not talking about heaven or hell, guys. I'm talking about if we're only partially in agreement with the word of God and the principles of God, your marriage isn't gonna be that good. Your kids aren't gonna be that good. You're not gonna have good solid relationships. You're not gonna have things like peace and joy and patience and goodness and kindness and self-control, the fruit of the spirit. We're not gonna have those things in our life. We're not gonna have wisdom and discernment if we just have a partial allegiance to God because it's only when we're full of God's spirit that those things start to blossom out of us. We have to be fully devoted and have we counted the long-term cost that yes, there may be these short-term selfish gains, right? If I lie on my taxes, I might get a little bit more money this coming year. Or if I cut line, I may save a little bit of time waiting for that thing. Or if I'm, you know, cut you off in traffic, I may get to work 30 seconds faster or whatever the case may be. Whenever we start to put things, whenever we start sacrificing long-term character for short-term rewards, have we started to really think about what that costs us? We're talking real this morning. If you've ever heard of OnlyFans, right? If you haven't, don't Google it. I'll just tell you what it is. 
It is a website where anyone can sign up. You can do your own pornography, which means you can do lewd things online and people can sign up and pay you to do those things, right? There have been every, every couple of weeks or every couple of months, there's another kind of like B-level actor or athlete that goes to, to OnlyFans and the, the news articles always say, so-and-so from Disney's TV show made more in a day than she did her whole time at Disney. So-and-so UFC fighter made more in a day than they ever made fighting in the UFC. So-and-so Olympian, there's several Olympic uh, uh, athletes that are doing it now, they made more money doing this in one day than they ever made being in three different Olympic games. And people applaud that. That's right, you get what's yours. You get paid. And the only thing I think of when I read those articles is yes, in one day you got all this affirmation, if you wanna call it that, you got all this money, you got all this stuff, right? Not thinking, though, that what it really cost you was your integrity, your character. Now, listen, that's an extreme case, but how do we sell ourselves out for instant gratification? How do we sell out the bigger things like honor? Do we even know what that is anymore? So we can be first in line. So we can make sure that no one gets what's ours so, so, so we can work our way up the corporate ladder or make sure that we get more thumbs than the other person gets little thumbs up or whatever we do to sell ourselves out, what does it really cost us? What is the long-term expense of that really? And on the flip side of that, because I'd love to somehow end on a positive note this morning, have we thought about if we do the opposite of culture, because everything your society tells you right now is instant gratification. Don't think about tomorrow, do whatever you want right now. And, and the reason why we're seeing such a cluster right now in the United States is, uh, is because we, we, we are not thinking about long-term ramifications for short-term desires. And if we would do the opposite of that and build a biblical foundation of honoring God's principles, honoring how God wants us to live, loving him more, loving others more, living out the different principles and commands that Christ taught us. If we would build that foundation, we start to also build character because when we are true Christians, we are mimicking the actions, the words, the intent of Christ who is righteous. And when we mirror and mimic and do our best to be as, as, as the people in Antioch, not Antioch, Antioch called the first group of Christians, the word Christian was derogatory. You know what it meant? It meant little Christs. They would say, look at those little Christs, the Christians. And the Christians heard that and they were like, we like that. That's what we're trying to be. Little Jesus is on earth. Not that we can do all the things he did, but we are representatives of him. And if we build the foundation, listen, it is not easy to always be honest. It is not easy to always be hardworking. It is not always easy to put others above yourself and to love others like you want to be loved. These things are not always easy, but if we build that foundation, there's not just an eternal reward for that. Your marriage will be better. Your, your, your relationship with your children will be better. Your work environment will change. Listen, even beyond those things, you'll have peace of mind. You will have the gift of wisdom. You will make better decisions. There are all of these things that if we would put the work in the front end, there are these long-term results. So we need to be so careful that we don't become the kind of people that get sucked into this instant gratification you know, and, and, and throw all wisdom and, and, and thoughts of the future out the window. 
We need to make sure that we are people of character. Be a person of character. How do we learn to do that? It's right there. It's right there. We just need to take the time to dig into that. Okay. People of character. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 that we are to be salt and light. There's no way to be the light of the world when we act just as dark as everyone else. There's no way to do that. There's no way to be the salt, the flavor of the world if we're, if we're doing all the same stale things that society is doing. We're to be preservatives and we preserve his principles, right? His character, his nature. We need to adopt that nature. Paul says this in Philippians. Okay. Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you are in this room and maybe you are not a believer or maybe you're a new believer and you just have some questions, up here on my right, your left, Pastor Jonathan is up at the stage. If you have any questions for Pastor Jonathan, he'd love to talk with you, okay? We have men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything in your life, please don't be embarrassed or worried about that. Uh, We do this as a family, guys. So if you need prayer for anything, please let someone pray with you. The last thing is all the way around this room where we see a lamp on a table and then the majority of these pillars that are lit up, um, there is bread and wine that represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ, communion. Everyone is welcome to go get communion. You can go take it by yourself with your family members, friends, however you feel comfortable. Everyone is welcome to do that as long as you've asked Jesus to forgive you of your sin, okay? Let me pray for you. Father God, we love you. Lord, I pray that all of us in this room, God, can be people of character, people of morality, people of integrity, Lord, that we can love you, that we can love others well. God, that we can be good examples of you, Lord. We are, we are going against the grain. We are, we are swimming up current, God. Our modern society, Lord, is, is so selfish and, it, and it, doesn't, it doesn't value character. But Lord, let us be people of character because you're a God of character, a God of virtue, Lord, and integrity. We love you. We thank you. Keep us safe, God. We pray all these things in your son's name, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you so much.